David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. You are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And we are going to be discussing the final chapters, the final drama, the final D gothic to the drama. drama. That's, that's right. Uh, I'll, we're just I like that, let, let, let that just kind of linger in the air for a second. And uh, and we're back. We, we're all back. Uh, and, and speaking of which, we are all back. Thanks to you two for holding down the fort last week while I was gone. I'm sure the conversation was... Uh, and actually, I did listen to some of it. So it was, it was very interesting. We're going to discuss the final chapters here. Um, and... What did that mean? It was really I know, interesting. Interesting feels like a code word. Right. Is like was that damning with faint praise? Was that uh, does does the phrase oblique thought, insult thought provoking sound like an oblique insult or damning no, with faint praise? No, thought provoking is a compliment. Is, it's different than interesting. Interesting. Here, let's just. I'm going to say it the way that it can be heard. Your podcast was interesting. Hmm. That was yeah, an I can, interesting podcast. I can. I can. I can see that. Your commentary was. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Keep going. You got any other ones? That was an interesting podcast. Point. Yeah. 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 So hey guys. You made some um, interesting points. Thanks for holding you on the floor. You said some points. thought-provoking things. Oh, thanks, David. Oh wow. Thanks, David. <laughs> you're you're well, welcome. That means a lot. Was, we missed you. It was, you, but it was yeah, interesting. We missed Great you. conversation. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Your absence was interesting. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Noticed. But only sort of. Well, we are all three of us back now to discuss the end of the picture of Dorian Gray. And um, we'll just kind of dig right in. But I want to just quickly summarize what happened for those who who forgot where we left off. The last section left off right as Dorian is taking Basil, Basil, uh, into um, his room to see the painting. Uh, he subsequently killed him. Uh, and then the play, uh, I mean, the book sort of unspools from there. Um, and Dorian goes through various psychological conflicts. Um, and there's some side conversations between Henry and a duchess, and he gets threatened by Sybil Vane's brother, who is a sailor, who is uh, later shot in a hunting accident. And then in the end, poor Dorian Gray stabs himself in the portrait which would be an interesting uh, stabs himself in the stabs portrait himself is in the portrait is not a phrase to. i've ever heard before but it it's is something we the should probably, exact yeah, thing that happens we should probably use that somehow that should be brought into um more common usage i think i think so um one thing that we talked about at the beginning and this is kind of a bigger picture question i've got two kind of big picture questions about the book and we can use those to enter into the minutia of the scenes and the details and, you know, do some close reading. We talked about at the very first episode at the outset, how this book was responded to by the people of its time. And, mm. you know, we, we alluded to the fact that he, uh, uh, Oscar Wilde, that is, ended up on trial, not just for this book, but it was used, passages of this book were used during his trial. And people were very concerned about the possibility that this book was promoting immorality. And so my question is, now that we've read the whole book, were the people of his time right to call foul to this book? 
Heidi, do you want to address this? Oh man, I, I, I cannot read this book as anything other than a Victorian morality tale. Like I can't even conceive, and I didn't want to say it that strongly on the first episode because we hadn't read it yet, Right. but I cannot conceive of any possible way that the content of this book and the trajectory of the narrative of this story does anything but completely undermine his stated purpose in the prologue. So I, here's what I can, in a trial, I can 100% see, by the way, Heidi. Thank you. 100 P. <laughs> wow. We are on fire with our little quips today. I'm yeah, we excited are. about it's it. Like, thought provoking episode. And that episode is young. Um, I, We're recording I, on a different day. So everything's off. I think that there's content that is very immoral in this book. But all of that, but that's not the message of the book. That all gets, it's just reward. So I cannot, I don't think I can agree at all that. With the prosecution. Yes. With the people of his time. So, okay. I, absolutely, 100% there. Maybe this is what the prosecution yeah. in whatever Great Britain was thinking. In the morality police, like the ago. literal actual morality police. Right, right. Yeah. It's it does feel homoerotic at times. They're like these little moments that it's like, oh, that okay. That's what True. okay. I, we you didn't say it, but we know we what you're talking it. about. Um Surely the murder, spoiler alert, is not the complaint. Murders are happening all over literature at this point. I think it has everything to do with, okay, and surely it's not opium den. Like, right? Am I right? Like, there's an opium den scene, but surely this is not the only, like, literature that makes allusions to opium dens. I'm Sherlock Holmes. Right, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock was doing the opium for goodness sake. Yeah, it's positive in Sherlock Holmes. Well, and right, it's it's, it's performance enhancing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so surely it has everything to do with the suggestions of homoeroticism, right? I yeah. Well, and I think that there's so many things that that Dorian does in the book that are that are wicked, thoughtless, careless, right? Like, and not, it, I mean, cruel, but he All gets those things are covered in just, other literature, right? Right. And he, but he gets yeah. his just reward for sure. Right. Um, so maybe it's just the fact that those things are there. Yeah. That's gotta and, be it anyway. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit at a loss to read this book. I've, I've, all, all throughout the book, I've been trying to read it uh, as anything other than a as than a morality tale, and I can't, I can't. Okay, do it you at know all. what, Heidi, we the two of us and David, I assume you, but you'll speak up if this is not the case. We're so aligned on this. I think it would be a great challenge for listeners for the Q and A. Give us an alternative way to read it. Yeah, an alternative way to read it as other than a morality tale. Yeah, because yeah. he says in the prologue that he's trying to show there's no moral books or immoral books, and but I and just we get cannot, that repeated refrain right. in like the second to last chapter. 
Right. It's so curious. It's so curious. The prologue and I guess it's the part in the second to last chapter when Lord Henry is kind of, you know, kind of making points that sound a little bit like the prologue or the preface, Mm -hmm. whatever it's called. That's a little bit less curious because we kind of know where Henry is coming from. But the prologue written by the author and then the whole book undermines the point of the author, it seems, is just so... It's not bewildering. I just think it's an open, open contradiction that surely Oscar Wilde knew about and embraced in some way. It's just kind of, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. For those who either read it a while ago or, you know, don't just don't remember. Can can you, Heidi, can you kind of summarize what the point he's trying to make in that prologue? And then let's unpack a little bit about how the book runs counter to that and how it doesn't, uh, how it kind of like, well, how, what did you just use undermines sure. it? Yeah. I think is yeah. I think so, we should just make sure that this is, we are clear on what we're talking about here. Yeah. So I'll read a couple of significant lines from the preface, although it's worth rereading the entire thing. If you're listening and need a reminder, um, he says, uh, there is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. The 19th century dislike of realism is the rage of Caliban seeing his own face in a glass as a Shakespeare reference. Um, the moral life of man forms part of the subject matter of the artist, but the morality of art consists in the perfect use of an imperfect medium. No artist desires to prove anything. So I, he seems to be saying here that kind of what he's known for is this idea of art for art's sake, that art Mm -hmm. actually ought not to try to promote a moral lesson or else it ceases to be art. Uh, Art is in itself, it ought to pursue the beautiful, uh, but the beautiful need not be good, right? In the traditional moral uh, sense of the word good. Um, And he promoted that his whole life. And yet his all of his, all, in my opinion, everything he writes has a moral center. And so I can't, like I said, I always just think of him, you know, like Cormac McCarthy or, um, you know, I, that just, you don't believe trying, what you're saying. Yes. Like, so how would you yeah. define the moral and center? And I don't of condemn that because I actually believe that the good cannot be separated from the beautiful. And so I think this book might be my number one read for someone who says can you prove that to me that the book that the good cannot be separated from the beautiful i'd be like you should pick up the picture of dorian gray i think this book proves the opposite of what he's of his stated purpose oh can i make a an attempt to maybe make sense of the preface here here's a shot at it it's a rear guard action to protect him against uh lawsuits i mean he certainly right? added it later i believe what do you mean he added it later like, it wasn't with it, it wasn't published with the original story no way really he added it after the facts is my understanding you mean before so, publishing but after so the novel there was, was written? the lippincott it was in lippincott so it was published in the magazine and then when it was originally put eventually published as a novel that they had a, they took some of that homoerotic like they, they toned they even toned down some of the homoerotic stuff and he, that's when I believe he published this preface. 
he added or the prologue. I think he, I think that's when he added it. That's what I was, that's what I read. Um, now the source that I read it from could have been mistaken. Does that change your? It actually it enhances my case. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like, um, look, potential jury, potential prosecutors. I'm going to give you my literary criticism. I'm going to tell you a way that I think books should be read. And that will kind of like cover me against any prosecution. Ah, it's not about, it's not about moral or immoral. It's just about the Good experience art of and reading. Bad art, right? Good art and bad art. Yeah. yeah. So here, yeah, Tim, according to Wikipedia, following the criticism of the magazine edition of the novel, the 1891 publication of The Picture of Dorian Gray included a preface in which Wilde addressed the criticisms and defended the reputation of his novel. The content, style, and presentation of the preface made it famous in its own right as a literary and artistic manifesto in support of arts rights, artists' rights, and art for art's sake. He's And it talks about how he uses aphorisms and all that kind of stuff. Now, Heidi... Question I have though is does this book, if it's a morality tale, what is the does does this book offer a cohesive moral vision? Mm. And if so, what is it? I think it that's a really good question. And I I I think we should talk about this for a bit. I think that um the the story affirms my contention that the good cannot be separated from the beautiful. And any attempt to do so will damage and divide the soul. I I do not think, or at least I don't see, a compelling uh, solution to that, like a a a, a framework for morality, um, a compelling spiritual vision, other than. Well, maybe I'm wrong because it is Basil who invites him to repent, like spiritually repent. It's religious. He says, remember what we have been taught as a boy to cry out to God and, 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 and to repent of our sins. And so maybe the book does offer a truly compelling spiritual vision that all the characters reject for their various reasons. And so we don't get to ever kind of fully meet it face to face because it's rejected, but it is offered as a solution to Dorian's divided self is repentance, spiritual Christian repentance. Hmm. What do you guys think? I think it's totally cohesive. I think it's a great insightful kind of um i don't know treatise on what a person's soul would look like if they lived the sort of life that dorian lived i okay i'm just going to step next to some deep waters i don't know that we necessarily need to go into these deep waters the deep waters that i want to ask is um This book was written, yes, in the Victorian age and into a culture that was deeply, deeply formed by Christian theology, right? Mm -hmm. Like deeply formed. And so Dorian's conscience was formed by like the relics of Christian theology and the church. And 
it's the it's his conscience that condemns him at the end and drives him toward his final act right um i am curious what the conscience looks like in the 21st century as christian theology and the church's influence seem to be by all indications receding right now and so I'll just make a claim, like anthropologically, I think the conscience is deeply formed by culture. Um, and, and I don't know that, like, I think C.S. Lewis's like vision of the Tao is really compelling. Um, but I'm going to say he's making a case for kind of like a universal kind of sense and right and wrong. But I think even C.S. Lewis would say, the, num- the the amount of kind of moral oughts that we have across culture is across cultures is limited right it's not like we get everything in like the 10 commandments is formed into every single conscience across the world i don't think so i think part of christian culture and the church's influence like help shape those things i'm curious this is the kind of deep waters that i'm stepping next to is if you were to write a picture of dorian gray today given like that we're in kind of like a post-christian west how the picture of the conscience might be different that's an interesting question to me i don't just mean interesting i mean thought-provoking <laughs> can I, was be like, used. I, I think I'm yeah, gonna get you're, you're just proving you're just proving my points, my usage. <laughs> we'll give you that. That's um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So is that something you actually want to like try to hypothesize about? Well, no, I just wanted to step next to the water and if you guys wanted to like go swimming with me, awesome. If not, I really like this metaphor. Direction. Let's keep it going. Yeah, I'm um, really torturing it. I'm, I'm just really gonna, forcing we just, it. We just put our put a dip our toes in. Right. Yeah. I I wonder if to go back to your I think that the question you're bringing up Tim is relevant to our earlier kind of question mark over the idea of art for art's sake. Mm. Um because we've gone so far past the age of censorship and way to the other extreme. Yeah. Um in which it's considered artistic to portray wickedness like unflinchingly, right? Like the mm-hmm, unflinching mm-hmm. gaze of the darkness of life is somehow artistic. Mm. Um and if you if you create something that's wholesome, um then it's kind of considered like lesser art, right? Um and so we're so far the other way now um, that I think your question is truly thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. Um, Why, what, thank you. Like the question of what is the conscience, maybe that's what he's trying to raise. And the damage that's done to the conscience in this book um, is uh, he wants he wants to portray it so so extremely that he's talking mm. about opium dims and the you know the sullying of the reputation of women which to us is like eh, you know all right but to the victorians to make any kind of reference to um to a man treating a woman with such callousness was mm. as as um shocking 
uh, as the opium den, it's, den itself, right? And then to go even further and and to blackmail a young man, and the implication is that is the relationship between these two men is going to be made public, right? Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. is like whoa beyond the pale. Um, and to us, this is kind of like everyday occurrences. This is the kind of thing we post on social media. We we're not hiding this in any kind of like symbolic lock childhood past. We're just like putting it out there to make us famous. And and so blackmailed Sean today. Yeah, like what? Yeah. What kind of, um, how could, how could this, to us then, this feels like a morality tale that's needed for a culture that's forgotten what a conscience is. Mm. Whereas Mm. in such a Victorian era, they knew what the conscience was, they're extremely duty-driven culture. And so to kind of push that beyond the pale, um, to, to mention these types of sins, even obliquely, was so shocking that maybe that's what he meant by art for art's sake. Okay, so the, my question then is, what is the relationship between the notion of art for art's sake and, and conscience? Because right. the book spends the last quarter of it being like an ode to crime and punishment, like fan fiction to crime right. and punishment. <laughs> um, right. That's exactly right. Like he, even from the way he kills Basil to, you know, the, the, the way he sees people coming for him. And so if the book is about British pinky fan fiction (laughs) of a Russian novel. Yeah. Yeah. So, So what is the, I mean, what is the relationship then between trying to make a book that is trying to make art that is saying that, for its own sake, art should exist, and the notion of conscience. Like that seems to be like there is a disconnect there. Um, that that it's like I can see that there's a, perhaps a cohesive moral vision for the book, but I don't necessarily see how those themes cohere into a unified whole. I don't either. Um, I think that's what I'm. Yeah, I agree. Go on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. Next. Yeah. <laughs> what if it's something like um. Art for art's sake takes for granted that beauty, truth, and goodness are kind of separate. They can be separated. I mean, Heidi's already stated, and I agree with her, they can't. But it's just, the, the preface is saying something like, yeah, truth and goodness and beauty, especially goodness and beauty, these are just operating on different wavelengths. Okay, reader. What an okay jury, an okay British public. What I want you to do is take for granted that you can separate goodness and beauty. Just want you to read it for beauty's sake. And like you get to the end of the book and you're like, okay, can't do it. Can't do it. You wrote a novel that does not allow us to do that. But I think that's the that's the attempt, that's the kind of philosophical goal of art for art's sake is it sort of like i um allow it is a uh step into the aesthetic bath that is a great play a great novel a great picture and look there's part of a, i mean i think all three of us would on some level agree with that like if we come we talked about this in the first episode if we come with a kind of moralistic axe to grind on any book about any author, then the book that we read is less powerful, robust, that's right, and convicting than if we just let it speak for itself. 
But I think like kind of like the warp and woof of the universe is such that you can't just take these things apart. They correspond in some deep way and in, in an attempt to separate them like Dorian does and like Lord Henry does ends up coming back to bite you. Right. Because Dorian attempts to do that after the murder, right? He goes into a study and he reads the poetry about Venice and he tries to kind of comfort and soothe himself with these with the memory of his aesthetic experiences that he has thrown himself into all throughout the world right, and right. to recreate that in his memory and then Lord Henry even tells him the only way to love is to rem- is is to have a great experience that you continue to come back to again and again and Dorian can't do that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he can't because he's so haunted by his crime uh so it's, it just seems so, and, and the thing is, is that I love that. I, I like, I like this story so much because it has such a compelling moral vision. Mm. So the thing, and so I think that's why I keep returning to this as being so um, like disorienting to me, because the thing I love about the book is the thing he says he's not trying to do with the book. Yeah. I was fascinated by the way towards the end of the book, it sort of pits, you know, it spends the whole, the whole book is early on. It's about these characters pursuing pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. Like the scent, this, the senses being this highest good. Like we're going to follow our senses. We're going to see where they take us and we're going to live, live accordingly and probably not even deal with the consequences because we have money. But then at the la- the latter part of the book, it really begins to pit conscience and the senses against each other. And I was trying to figure out um, how that plays into what you're talking about there. Um, because what, the thing that I've struggled with candidly, if I can be candid, um, is the question of whether there is a cohesive moral vision. I think that there is, and I'm going to use it, there are interesting moral questions that are asked mm-hmm. And I, what I'm trying to figure out is, does it go beyond that and offer a, a cohesive vision? You're saying like a, you think it... Do you mean, David, do you mean a cohesive vision or do you mean a positive vision? Mm. Well, that, you know, I think I mean cohesive, but the notion of a morality tale with a non-positive moral vision would be a fascinating thing to discuss. Um, if we're calling like, it- like imagine crime and punishment, if you didn't, if you had just Raskolnikov's conscience eating at him, but no redemptive turn at the end of the book, I would call that. I mean, what does that become? A, yeah, maybe so. Maybe, uh, um, but I would say, Kafka? okay, that's a cohesive vision, but there's no positive statement it's only a cohesive kind of uh diagnosis of the nature of crime's impact on our conscience like on Macbeth. our moral sense yeah like, Macbeth like, Macbeth. Is like that it's it's cohesive but it doesn't present yes like, okay it doesn't present any kind of solution or positive vision for what right. Macbeth could be if he wasn't wicked right, right. and yeah. that's not necessarily what i'm saying i, I so yeah and Based, thank you. I'm talking about the idea of it being cohesive because what I have a hard time with is figuring out who, whom is meant to be wise or virtuous when they speak in this book. Is Are we supposed to at any point supposed to accept the narrator at any time? 
I mean, I even think that there's times when the book thinks Harry is saying things that are that are right. I think Basil at the moment of his death. That's that's who we're supposed to follow. That's he is the moral center of the book before his death when he sees the picture. And the reason I think he is worthy to be followed at that point is because he also experiences a repentance. He considers himself complicit in uh in Dorian's fall and he's right. Uh and and he takes responsibility and he invites uh Dorian to to do the same. He says, look at what we have done. Look at what I have done to you. And now look who you have become as a result of that. I made this picture. I made you the way you are. And you also have done that to yourself. Now let us repent together. And he uses a very Christian language um, and very uh, morally weighted, not just morally weighted language, but spiritual language. And he recalls him to the innocence of childhood. Remember what we were taught in our youth. Let us return I think it is a, I think he is the moral voice of the book. And I think we're supposed to believe him in that moment. I think so too. And as I am want to say, Hundo P. Yep. Right. <laughs> I'm getting that. Tattoo. In this case, do you just mean that it's W-A-N-T? You just want to say it? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> I want to say, say it. And anytime. I also want Heidi to get a neck tattoo that says Hundo P. That's that's like my dual motive right here, right now. I could be persuaded. In this in this beautiful space. Yep. Oh man. So um You missed this, David. You missed this. Last Last week. week, When I wasn't here. Yeah, Yeah, of course I missed it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't seem like you missed me much. Because because it was so because it was so good. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, because it was so interesting. (laughs) <laughs> it was way more interesting uh without me um so there's two questions that i have about specific parts of the book that i think actually are would be might be specific might be entryways into deeper conversation on this topic one is do we think that dorian was supposed to was was right does the narrator think that dorian was right to not continue his relationship with uh, the girl at the end of the book. Mm, great question. Um, with Hedy. there's a couple, yeah. yeah, and then so like, was Dorian right to cast her off as he does? And then also, why does the why does Dorian? Well, what are we supposed to? What are we supposed to take from the fact that Dorian? tries to, without unknowingly tries to save the life of his would-be assassin. Mm-hmm. Like that's Great a pretty questions. big moral, like there's like, there's a moral weight to that mm-hmm. moment there. And I think those are, so those are two choices that wild makes that our protagonist, if you can call him that makes that, that have to do both with conscience. And I think with maybe not art for art's sake, but um, certainly the moral vision of the book. Which would you like to do first, Heidi? Oh, let's talk about James Vane first. Do you repeat that part of the question, David? Yeah. So remember when James gets shot right. in the hunting accident? Right. Uh, right before he does, Dorian turns to, oh, what's his name? The guy he's with and says, no, don't kill the rabbit. Don't kill that little cute bunny rabbit. It's so beautiful. 
and then the guy he's with says, what? That's crazy. And he shoots. And then when he shoots, he then hits James Vane, who's hiding out in the woods. So the book has him almost save the life of his would-be assassin. In the end, he doesn't, though. And he is saved. He ends up, all those premonitions he was having earlier end up being false. Um, so what do, why do we, why does wild make that choice? Like, it's like, that's not one of those things that you keep in there. If you're, if it doesn't mean something. I heard well, the first time I read this novel, I thought that James was going to kill Dorian. Mm. Um, and that, and I remember thinking that that was not, I, I kind of like waited for that. I felt like, you know, yeah, so James is like Chekhov's <laughs> gun, right? Like he's oh, yeah. got to go yeah. off at some point. Um, so back he comes to avenge his sister. And I'm like, that would, i I hope that doesn't happen because I think that would be a really shallow ending. And so I think he's kind of a red herring. And because the only way this novel can end is Dorian destroying himself. I think this has one of the most perfect endings in English literature. I love the ending of this novel. Say what you will about anything else. I think it's, that is so good. Agreed, yeah. He stabs himself in the portrait and then he, it becomes like his, the, the corpse he leaves behind in is the enfleshed wickedness, right? I think that's perfect. It's great. It's so good. Um, so James Vane had to be got rid of somehow because I think he's a red herring to this perfect ending. Um, and so it makes sense to me that that Oscar Wilde thought it would be kind of clever for it to be um almost that that Dorian almost saves him, but can't quite get it done. I I think that that's kind of a clever plot device. Um, but what else? What else is there to it, Tim? Well, did you read the Little Rabbit to be like James himself? No, or- no, just sort of like the awakening of some sort of like empathetic notions or something like that, because that's like what's been absent. That's not the only thing that's wrong with Dorian. I understand mm. that. But he's just been so self-centered. And now we're kind of to see him kind of wake up, have feelings on behalf of others. And yeah, it immediately goes in the exact wrong direction. But I thought that was a, that was like a really nice move. Yeah, yeah. Dorian still Dorian still has he's got a heart in there. He does. He has a conscience, but he never responds to his conscience rightly. And mm. um, and I think that 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 the question about James is the same question as about Hetty. And so I find mm. it really interesting that David, that you asked both of those in the same question, because in a sense, I think it's the answer is the same, which is they both awaken conscience in Dorian, and yet he's still even in his response to conscience, it's either ineffective like it is with to save James or it is um, hip, or hip, it's hypocritical like with Hetty. And that's what shows up in the portrait. Like he goes to the portrait thinking, oh, I've done my good deed. Now the portrait's going to look better. I'm finally good. But he sees that even his righteousness, like to use a, the Christian terms, is filthy rags. Like he, they can't, they, they accomplish something. They are coming from the same egoism that he has always displayed. They're not sincere. Um, and, and I think both of those are coming, both of those choices that he makes, um, have the same root, which is that he is still entirely self-indulgent. 
even when he's trying to be good. Yeah, that's well said. What do you think, David? Well, I was wondering if he, you know, he responds to the rabbit, if there's something, he, his senses are awakened. So he responds to the rabbit, tells him not to shoot him, but the guy's like, the guy doesn't see the world the same way. So it, it, I think Wilde's kind of playing with the idea that his obsession with the senses could have gotten him killed. <laughs> um, if he, you know, if the other guy didn't see the world in a more sort of black and white, practical, or maybe just uh, gamely way. <laughs> and then I was, so then I was wondering if, I mean, I think this, as you said, I think the two moments are kind of meant to build on one another or correspond to one another, but at least ref- reflect. So, so then I was wondering, is the second one with Hetty meant to be the next step in that? So, I mean, if, if it is, if, if what you're saying is right, then maybe, maybe that's what it is. Like it's first his, he's, his conscience is becoming sharper maybe, but then why does, so why does he tell her ultimately to, to, to leave? He basically says, I'm not going to let what happened to Sybil happen again. I'm not worthy of being with you and stuff like that. Right. You don't, you don't, basically, you don't want to be with me. I'm a bad guy. Um, but then, as you say, he's not really thinking. Is he thinking about her? Is he actually thinking about her? Or is he thinking about himself again? It's maybe more pure than the way he responded, pure intentions, the way he responded to or was cast off Sybil. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like I, this is part of why I ask what's the, cohesive moral vision of the story, I suppose. Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's been a ton of psychological criticism on this book, um, psychoanalytic criticism about Dorian Gray as a true narcissist, that he cannot, like he literally cannot see anybody else's point of view, but his own. Um, And, uh, and so even when he is, um, I mean, we see this with Sybil, Right. Like after Sybil's death, he his conscience is awakened, but he still can't see it from her point of view. Like he doesn't mm. everything he says is entirely about himself, how it impacts him. Right. Um, he blames uh what's the what's the young man who he blackmails to get rid of the body? I can't remember his name. Alan? Yeah, he, yeah, he, right. Is it Alan? But um, I don't know what his last name is. Well, forgive Thor- me, listeners, if you're yelling because I'm getting it wrong. Yeah. Um <laughs> Uh, that he, even then he remember that like completely insincere moment when he says, I wish that you could have a thousandth part of the compassion on me that I have on you, even though he has manipulated this young man to commit a very grievous, become an accessory after the fact of murder. Alan Campbell. Yeah. Alan Campbell. But like Dorian truly cannot see that he is to blame like he really can only see it through his perspective like you have to help me alan or else i'm going to go to prison and i can't have that so i like it's your fault that you're making me do this and i think he's sincere in that which is how true narcissists are like that is true i think dorian gray is the best literary picture of a true actual narcissist like a diagnosed narcissist there's a lot a lot of criticism on that if you're interested in it um but that 
I, we see that even in these moments of clarity that he has when his conscience is awakened because he's a human being and human beings have consciences. When it is awakened, even then he cannot see it as anything other than just kind of a scene to play upon within himself um, that impacts himself and has implications to himself. Um, and, and that's what he ends up seeing in the portrait. Um, at the end, and that's the thing he can't stand, right? And that's why he 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 stabs it. I think if he had never stabbed that, like I mean, then the book obviously would keep going. But like, if Dorian hadn't killed himself, he hadn't stabbed himself in the portrait. What would have happened? So, what do you think? Like, a, what do you think the book sets up as the next years of his life? That's intriguing. It's an intriguing. I mean, I know it's hypothetical. Right. But I think the book, you know, could offer, it, it's telling enough story to offer some clues. I think it's always just a matter of time before he commits suicide. Like that's the ultimate end of hedonism. That's why. You don't think that he could have, there was like enough seeds of like hope, like I throw myself at the foot of the altar. You don't think that was in there? You think I he's too know. far gone? I yeah. kind of do. I don't, I kind of think he's, there's no other end for Dorian. Mm. I don't know. Do you do you disagree? You think that there's some true know. goodness in him still? It's faintly burning. Um, but I think there's I think there's a little bit left in him. But it's hard. Do you guys remember um when Ted Bundy asked? Yes. Right? No, but um, say it. Sorry, what was his name? Uh, Dr. James James Dobson. He asked him to come to his cell and Ted Bundy, how many people had he killed? He was like a serial murderer. And I think, was he like a sexual? Yes. Deviant also? Yeah. Um, And, and so Dobson went to his cell and they made this whole documentary out of it and it was kind of like a man this could i could sound really cynical about that i could sound really cynical i think when i heard it about a young as a young man i was like wow ted bundy came to christ at the end of his life this miracle has happened and now i look back and i think ted bundy was a constant and perpetual Oh yeah, shapeshifter who was who always had an agenda, and it looks like Dobson might have gotten had. I clearly don't know this. I mean, we're talking about men's souls, and I have no access to it aside from behavior. Um. So yeah, I I just wonder. I mean, I think maybe your case, Heidi, is something like that. Like Dorian is so far gone and he's always working angles there was no room there was no more angles left to play redemption was not even something that really crossed his mind so this is the natural end well he plays i mean i think i i really like the comparison with ted bundy and i have a pretty strong opinion on on that um do you, I think that do you he agree with me or is, think dobson got played think dobson because got played. for the same reason the same thing we see in dorian which is what ted bundy i listened to that interview and essentially what he says is pornography made me do it 
Yeah. An external like, force really? made me do this, right? Yeah. Um, and and that's constantly Dorian's refrain. Somebody else made me do it. Henry made me do it. Basil made me do it. The picture made me do it. Alan mm-hmm. made me do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like I may have done something bad, but something made me do it. Um, Sybil made me do it. She's such a bad actress. Yeah. Like, sorry. I mean, the, the world's better off without her. Like that is continually Dorian's refrain. Um, even when he feels bad, it's an aesthetic experience, not a truly repent experience of repentance. And when he's invited to repent, he commits murder. And then at the end, um, David, you made such a good comparison with crime and punishment because he'd when he's when he rejects Hetty, right, and he's having a true like his conscience is rising up. His mm. response to to that is, "I know what I need to do. It is to publicly confess my crime. Right? Mm. It is go out into the public square, kiss the ground, stand up, and say I am a murderer." Sonia's invitation. He knows that, and and he and instead he kills himself. He would rather commit suicide than a meaningful act of repentance. And to choose death over repentance is the act of a lost soul. So do you think he knows that he's committing suicide when he stabs the painting? Um, I mean, to me, it's the same question as did he know he was committing murder when he stabbed Basil just because he was so mad? Like, as you can tell, I'm not a huge fan of Dorian. <laughs> I, I think that he, I don't know if he knows, but I think his rage and hatred is so overwhelming that it doesn't matter if he knows or not. So you um, think he stabs the, his portrait at the end through, for the same because reason of he hatred. Stabbed Basil. For the same reason he stabbed Basil, which is to avoid repentance. Anything but that. Murder, suicide, death, death and oblivion instead of repentance. You have to think about that. What do you think, David? But I have to think about it. Insta reaction. <laughs> Give us a hot take. Insta reaction. Well, one thing I like what, what you're saying is that the book clearly wants us. It's using Harry as a dramatic. It's not the right word, but as a dramatic foil. In other words, it's to create. It's like to to reorient us away from what's actually going on. And I think that he, every time he has a conversation with Henry, Harry, whatever. You're like, yeah, you kind of feel like I can, this guy's a bad influence on you, right? You're reminded that Harry, Henry is a bad influence on on Dorian. Right. And for a minute, you want to excuse the behavior. Maybe not literally, but like you're dramatically, you're reminded and you don't, you don't, like I'm not saying anybody walks away. He's charming to the end. Right, right. And he's like kind of always on the verge of saying something profound, but even if it's like not right, it's kind of order it's almost profound like you could have a long conversation about all of the assertions the aphorisms that he makes which is kind of what frankly oscar wilde does in his prologue so i think that i think that that's to your point i think that that's really interesting i need to read the drama of that i need to reread those that scene at the end to know if i totally agree with what you're saying like i think it i agree with most of it but um i it's Thinking about the way Oscar Wilde's life ended is is interesting in connection to this book, Go because on. when he wrote the book, he wouldn't. He was he grew up in a he grew up um, as any I guess anybody did at the time, and especially in England, which is the Church of England is this huge part of the culture. Or you're Catholic and you're living in a world where for centuries Catholicism was a little bit 
shall we say, frowned upon, <laughs> um, if not straight up persecuted, as we, as in Brideshead Revisited explores. So he's surrounded by all that. He speaks that language. He he understands the images. Um, he is rejecting it though. Um, but then at the end of his life, he does supposedly he did ask. He did have confession and and like join the Catholic Church late in his life, supposedly. And so that's an interesting contrast to what you're saying that there is no hope for Dorian. That for him, it's anything. But you, I guess one wonders if the creative process, you know, like in the moment, how is Dorian, how, how does Oscar Wilde think about that? Is that, would you argue then, is that your reading of it outside of his intentions? Or do you think that's what Wilde wants us to think is that there is no, um, right. I, hope that I he's think, not. Oh, that's a tough one because I, I think we all, we are always given the opportunity to repent. Like Mm. I just, we always can. But the question for me is more like, is there anything in the story that indicates that Dorian has, has the, the capacity or the inclination towards sincere repentance? And I think the answer to that is no, but I'm not making a theological statement that he's beyond the pale and he's done so many terrible things he couldn't. I just don't think he will based on the character we're given in the story. So to your point, if we look at the last couple of pages, that this murder, was it to dog him all his life? Was he always to be burdened by his past? Was he really to confess? Never. There, would only, there was only one bit of evidence left against him. The picture itself, that was evidence. He would destroy it. Why had he kept it so long? Once it had, been give, once it had given him pleasure to watch it changing and growing old, of late he, felt he, he had felt no such pleasure. It had kept him awake at night. When he had been away, he had been filled with terror, lest other eyes should look upon it. It had brought melancholy across his passions, which is the most hilarious understatement line <laughs> right. It, brought, great. It, it brought melancholy across I feel his passions. Melancholy across my passions. <laughs> uh, I mean, that needs to be a, a, a t-shirt or a poster. Impressed. <laughs> yeah, it's mere memory. With all mo- of the murder, seduction, and <laughs> grief I've caused in the world. <laughs> right. It's mere memory had marred many moments of joy. It had been like it had been like conscience to him, which is an interesting line. Yes, it had been conscience. He would destroy it. He looked around. He saw, sees the knife. He so he is he is in the moment st- killing con- his conscience, and then in killing his conscience, he kills himself. Right. Um, okay. So so that order of operations checks out for me with what you were saying. Um, I just hadn't thought about it in that way, so I wanted to look at it. But so I'm wondering, does does the book and does Wild think that he's beyond the pale that he is unredeemable? And if so. Like, when did that happen? Yeah, I think one of my big questions with this book is, as I was reading it, particularly this time, I kept asking myself, what's the turning point? What's the point of no return for Dorian? Mm. Um, and I, I I see several moments that could be, you could argue for. So I, that was, to your question, I just think that's a, that's an interesting and thought-provoking question. Well, so I think I bring it up. I don't want, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to say this in a way that's not a criticism of the book because who am I to judge? But 
I wonder if some of the... I have a hard time trying to identify where some of those kind of elements are earned. I think you and I were kind of texting about it. Like, right. Where I don't... The book tells us he's charming, for example, and that people initially love him and then they, they don't like him later. And I... The hard the the thing that I have a hard time with is that it just kind of tells us that it doesn't necessarily it doesn't show us that. Show and us. I'm not a purist on the show, not don't tell thing like some people are, but I have but but it feels a little unearned given the moral implications of what Wilde is trying to talk about. So that's where I think I, I I buy the sort of principles or I buy what you're talking about in principle, but I and I think that the book is is trying to do what you're saying, but I don't know that it's always successful in earning what it's trying to do and what it ultimately does, if that makes sense. Like dramatically, mm. I don't know if it pulls that off. Um, and again, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just like trying to think through, well, you know, how that's he what earns we're here it. for. We're allowed to make judgments <clears throat> about the book. I think you're right. I think we don't, we're told that Dorian is this like ideal beauty physically and that he has, that that has power over people. But other than the fact that he's looks a certain way, what is there about his personality that's compelling to others? We don't see that. We don't. He doesn't show us that. He just tells us that. That's what I. Yeah. So I, right. I think you're right. Do you agree with and, that? And Tim? same later. Yeah, I do. The, I do. The more he gets, more evil. Which to me, that's really ironic because um, I think it's just pretty funny that what we're saying is that it succeeds as a very deep morality tale, but kind of fails as a work of art, and it seems like his his intention was the exact opposite of that yeah, so i think that's yeah, funny that's, that's that is very well, that's funny. kind of like yeah, that's a great I, point. I kept thinking about um scarlet letter when huh. we read this where we're talking we we talked a lot about how i don't what i want to say is doesn't qualify to this book but we talked in that those conversations about how that's a book that's more fun to talk about than it is to read mm-hmm. partly because it, it it relies so much on the morality tale elements of it i think that this book has that sense where it's really fun to talk about because it's bringing up all of these thought-provoking and interesting questions. Interesting in a myriad of ways. Um, But it also has probably more passages that are like, because because of the gothic elements and because of the occasional great beauty of the prose, it has, it makes for a more fun read. Like it's actually kind of enjoyable Take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. When he's going in and out of the opium dens, and he's running up against Vane, and the stuff happens with the rabbit, like these big moments actually are kind of fun to read. They're kind of page turnery because because Wild knows what he's doing in that sense. Like he's, I told Heidi in text, I'm going to say something I almost never say. This is a book that I actually think should be longer. Yeah, that because was a moment for me. Because I think that Wild is better at creating moments and scenes than he allows himself room to do here. And I think some of the times when like he just jumps way ahead in time or he spends time uh, telling us stuff, if he'd given us more scenes and more passages and he'd written something that was another, you know, 50 pages longer, I think that it might have had more, even more uh, weight. But I wonder if one of the reasons why it is remembered is that it's fairly consumable. Right. I think that's like this whole question of Dorian and and a couple of listeners commented on this. Um, One comment in particular was like, what's the big deal about Dorian? Why is everybody so deceived by him? And I think it's a really good question because, but we know what's, here's what's interesting to me. We know that, that Wilde can do that because he does that with Lord Henry. That's the whole thing about Lord Henry. He's so charming and yet there's no substance to him. 
And it it's his influence that creates Dorian the monster, right? And um, Lord Henry's not really a monster, Dorian is, but it is through the influence of Lord Henry that Dorian becomes what he who he is. But hmm. so we know that that Wilde can give us a character who is charming and seductive. Um, and uh in a way that to me, Dorian is not. We don't ever really see him in society. And the big moment at the end, like that whole conversation with the Duchess and Henry is hilarious. Like it's really, it's great. Why was Dorian a playwright? There, right? Why isn't Dorian having that conversation? Well, then we could see what it is that's so charming and compelling other than his physical beauty. And so all that does is lead me to believe that the only thing that's supposed to be compelling about Dorian is his physical beauty. Half the time he feels he's just a really good, he's just a really good looking emo lead singer. Totally. Yes. And I kind of think maybe Wilde actually did that on purpose because he casts Lord Henry in the role of the charming seducer and Dorian as just beautiful. I don't know, Tim, what do you think? Is Lord Henry Morrissey from the band, The Smiths? Do Do you guys know The Smiths? Lord Henry or Dorian? No, I think Lord Henry. He's too because Lord Henry is Morrissey. Morrissey's nice looking. He's super nice looking. But he's also like, I don't know. He has that uh, uh, that kind of affectation that I always hear. I always hear Lord Henry's voice sort of a, a bit like this. Oh, and yeah. I know what you mean. Can we, quite, can we t- take ourselves seriously if we are Throwing not some ideas out enough? there? Like that, yeah. yeah. And Morrissey's please love me because I'm beautiful. You know, Morsey has that kind of vibe of sort of like, I'm going to say something kind of brazen, um, but it's a kind of what we're all thinking. I mean, I that's what I get from Lord Henry. Right. That's for sure. That that thing you just said about the brazen. The thing I just and, said, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was could you do your Could you do your Morsey impression just a little bit longer? Now like give us an it. example because I'm not sure I have enough evidence to say yes or <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> like we're going to need to really I'm like can you do Morrissey as I'm Henry o- being openly baited on the air. You're not being baited, you're you're being praised Requested. for the quality oh, really? of your performance. How like how good was it? It was like think? it was like well, so good that we want to hear it again. <laughs> it's like they're I think I've den. lost it. I think I can't like I summoned it. Oh my gosh. And it's like ice sculpture. Here. It's like yes. an ice sculpture. The it's talent. there. It's perfect talent. for the moment. And then it melts. Bowl of green M&Ms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. And peeled grapes. <laughs> peeled grapes. Frozen and then peeled. Yeah. Do you guys think that uh, you said that Henry doesn't have any substance? Quick turn here. I'm not sure I agree with that. Like I, he, I think in a way he's shallow. But I think he might be a worse guy than you're giving him credit for when you say that he's got no substance. Like, I think he is substantially a bad guy. <laughs> okay. Like, he's like a he villain. knows what he's doing. I don't know if he, he knows it. what he's doing. Pers- I don't want to claim that. I need to think about that more. But I think that he is... People call him a cynic all the time. I think he is just sick. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that he I, is sick yeah. in a way... I think, I think he does have a bad influence on people. But it's not so much that he's going around trying to have a bad influence on people, although maybe he is, but I don't think he thinks about it. I think he's just... I think his way of looking at the world is is sick. But it's just interesting enough 
again, to use the word, to be compelling. Like I wrote down, like marked so many points where you could have an interesting, as I said earlier, an interesting conversation about aesthetics or philosophy or religion or even marriage driven by things that he says. They're on the verge of being uh, insightful, but wrong, right? And there's just enough insight for it to be compelling to someone like Dorian. And so I think that there is just, maybe what I'm trying to say is there's just enough substance to make him actually bad, as opposed to somebody who is like um, Bernie Wooster, who doesn't have any substance, and so he can't be either good or bad. Yeah. In fact, I I marked about thirty passages in this book that reminded me of reading. I'm reading Woodhouse right now. I'm reading a, a Jeeves and Wooster novel that Henry's talking, or they're talking about Henry, and it could have been straight out of a a Woodhouse novel, except mm. there he is satirizing those the the culture, and here we're meant to take Henry is taking is being meant to be taken seriously. Um, and that's that makes it like more scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I agree with that. I think that that's right. He is a true man without a chest. He's the if you've read Brideshead, you know our listeners. I know you guys have, but it's he's Rex Matram in a different form. Like he has no, um, and maybe that's what I mean by he doesn't have an obtrusive soul. Yeah, he like doesn't have an obtrusive soul. He's a soulless man, like divine in the Ransom trilogy. Um, when each of them have a particular kind of brand of soulless wickedness, and I think Lord Henry for sure is. Um, one question I have a I have a question. Can I ask you guys? One this is the same question. Yes. Thank you. Um, this is the question I have about Macbeth. And when I teach Macbeth in my classes or in the atrium, I always bring up this question, and I think it's relevant for Dorian Gray. Is this a, is Dorian a tragic hero? Like he could have been good, but he has a tragic flaw, and that flaw causes his downfall. Or is he villainous the entire time? Like is he bad or is he flawed? How do you read that? Can I throw a third alternative in there? Sure. He, let's contrast him with Macbeth. What is Macbeth's flaw? He's ambitious. He says it so. If what, he's like, a flaw, if, if he's a tragic hero, that's his flaw. And I think he but, is. I think Macbeth is a tragic hero. He succumbs to his ambition. I think that the problem with Dorian is that he is, he has no self. He's just damp clay and he is impressed by the only, the two people that we see that have deep interactions with him, deep in quotes, Henry and Basil, both of them make their impressions upon him and he has nothing, he has no shape to kind of like push back on them. Hmm. He just takes the impressions because he's just wet clay. So I I find that to be a little bit different from Macbeth because Macbeth is not decidedly not wet clay. He has kind of, he has this lurking problem in him that gets stirred by the witches and by Banquo and by Duncan and he gives into it. But I don't think, I, I think Basil just, excuse me, Dorian just accepts these suggestions from these two men and kind of runs with it. David, what do you David, think? David, what do you think? Wow. Wow. 
Um, so the options are, is he a tragic hero who could have been good, but for a fatal flaw? Or is he villainous? Or something else. Or is, something else. Like it's an open-ended or like a, question. Such as a selfless yeah. bit of wet clay. I mean, yeah. a, a selfless, not selfless in the sense that he is unselfish. He, has no he, is self, he has no yeah. self. Um, or something else. Um, it's a great question. If he is villainous, how so? <laughs> um, so I think the I think that maybe one of the questions that I have about this book is is Dorian a tragic hero who could have been good but for a fatal flaw, or is he? Um, <laughs> is maybe this is getting at what my frustration is with the book? Hmm. Is he is Oscar Wilde? not giving us an answer to that because on on purpose mm. or is he not giving us an answer to that because he doesn't know and also are all narcissists selfless bits of wet clay great question yeah questions behind the questions it's just when you were talking to you're talking about narcissism earlier and then tim you said that and so if he's an if he's a narcissist, that seems like that would be a big aspect to that. So I think Tim might be onto something there. I don't know if I would say what's I mean, what's the what's the thing that would keep him that would allow him to be a tragic hero? Like what is the good that we see right. that the flaw is overcoming? Right. Right. That's I think that's that's the question. See, I disagree with Tim. I think that Macbeth is a villain the whole time. I don't oh, think do. he's a tragic hero. Because there is no good that the flaw is overcoming? Yeah, I don't think he's ever good. I think he's always destined to fall. But I think that's debatable, right? That's just okay. my position on a debatable question. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Oscar Wilde might be saying, or that the book is positing, that beauty itself is the goodness that the tragic flaw overcomes? And so because he's beautiful, he is... a, a, a tragic a tragic hero i think that's basil's position on dorian that he that he is good because he is beautiful right and and therefore that that's like basil's grief is when he sees the separation of the two in the portrait that he painted and he knows that he was part of the separation in dorian um and I, it seems to me that that must be Oscar Wilde's position. I don't know that it's mine. Yeah, um, I mean, this is it. Yeah. You know, there's worth. so many layers, like, there's so many dynamic layers in this novel um, that are worth conversing about. I, I don't know if I think that um, he's wet clay because I, I, I think that's defensible. I think that's a defendable position. So I'm not going to say I think it's wrong. But I think that his egoism was present even before Basil and even before Henry and that they drew it out of him. He had nothing to resist. He had no, no virtue that was combat that was in inside of him was combating the egoism that was there. Yeah. Such that when the egoism was drawn out, it could be, it could be put in its right place. Right. Which may be not incompatible with your point, Tim, because yeah. if, if 
to be a self, to be a person without a self is to be a person without compelling virtue. And so I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that you're wrong about that. Um, but I don't think he's a blank slate. I think that there is this self-indulgence in him, but he was so young that it hadn't been explored or become the main part of his character, like the, mm. the front and center aspect of his character until Lord Henry kind of um, seduced him towards that. And then Basil gave him an object and made him an idol. And then him Basil making him an idol is what starts his downward trajectory, which means there's something in him that already wanted to be worshipped. And maybe that's all of us. Maybe that's everybody, but it certainly is Dorian. There's this line, we gotta gotta wrap this up, we're going long. Um, In the preface where he writes, it is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. And I wonder if Wilde Mm. is purposefully trying to be a little obtuse with a lot of this book to not give us clean answers on these things, which is what great art often does. But it feels as if it's like an exercise in being obtuse towards that end. Um, I think Oscar Wilde's kind of on to something with that too. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, then, yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. all that. Yeah. All right, let's do some final thoughts. Next week, we're going to answer your questions. So we'll post the thread where you can can, uh, post your questions. We'll go through as many as we can. Heidi, why don't you do a final thought first and then we'll turn to Tim so that Tim can... And then we got to do it quick though because Tim's been in a closet for like an hour and a half. (laughs) Yeah, my final thought is a shout out to the listener whose name I do not have on on the tip of my tongue right now who said that reading chapter... I think it's chapter 11 with the long description of Dorian's indulgences, aesthetic indulgences. He says, quote, it was like, quote, eating a pound of... eating pounds of baklava. And I loved that. I thought that was the most perfect description of the way it feels to read that section that just like that cloying nature of all that description. And you just can't wait for it to be over. Um, and, and it's just, I just thought that was perfect. So that's my final thought that's as a great. shout out to that comment that was, you nailed it. A little bit of baklava is a great, great thing. Absolutely. A lot of baklava, the whole Look. tray. No, no. A lot of fun. My, my final thought, I'm going to give a shout out to Christy, who I mentioned in the second episode. Um, she convinced me that this book is a great book for young people. And that shifted my reading of it. I think she's right. I, I, I got a lot out of the book. I, I enjoyed it. I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more if I was an overly precocious teenager, which I wasn't at all. Uh, well, you graduated to, an, to a precocious adult, but not an overly precocious one. Not overly it's the precocious. Right about, you know, the right like the golden mean, the mean like, between the golden, two like a small bit of baklava. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. You're like a the you're like a plate full of baklava with some hot precocious, Turkish precocious wise. Yeah. <laughs> precocious wise, you're like a hot plate of baklava. <laughs> that means you have no idea how much that means to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, we'll be back next week to answer your questions. Again, you, that's over on Substack. And don't forget about the uh, the other content we have over there. We've got our just did rear window on Close Fits at the Movies. You can check that out. That's up now. And then we've, we did a conversation on an Elizabeth Bishop poem. And there's a new column up from Heidi and lots of great content uh, out there. So if you are not already a subscriber, 
please check that out. You're you're missing out. That's closereads.substack.com. And uh, do either of you need to pitch anything before we go? Heidi mentioned, read the little section about uh, Caliban looking in the mirror. That was a reference to Shakespeare's Tempest. And if you would like to hear Heidi and I discuss the Tempest, tune in to The Play's The Thing, your one-stop nice. shopping center for all things Shakespeare. That was great. Found wherever you find your favorite podcast. Well, well done. That was nice. You had a good radio voice, too. Thank you. The Play's The yeah. Thing. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever you get podcasts. Wherever you get podcasts. Heidi, anything from you? If you want to come meet me, you can register for the Circe Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Actually, Tim is going to be there too. So the two of us will be speaking at the Lift Up Your Hearts Conference through the Circe Institute in October. And you can go to www.circeinstitute.org for more information on that. We'd love to meet you and connect with you. Well done, guys. That was like so professional of both of you. <laughs> so now I'm now going to end it. Thanks. This now podcast. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> After that little bit of uh, professional this. I'm going to end the podcast in my customary way. For Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Happy reading. 